Welcome everybody to this very special Motorsport Magazine podcast in association with Mercedes-Benz. What do you think of when someone says the word used, old-fashioned, out of tune, a bit scratched, something past its best? Chances are you're not thinking of a Mercedes-Benz. Think Mercedes-Benz approved used Suddenly, there's a lot more meaning to that little word. Visit your local retailer to find your used car today, and you'll see what I mean. I like the way you work Mercedes-Benz approved used. Used, but not what you're used to. Christian, thank you very much for welcoming us to, uh, to, to your home. I know you've had an incredibly busy few days. It's been the Mexico Grand Prix. You've been to Paris um, to talk about the new framework for engine and uh, chassis rules for the future. Um, you promised an exclusive, so we'll come back to that shortly. Um, and I'd also like to welcome Simon Aaron, our features editor. Good afternoon. Um, Thanks for having us, Christian. Yeah, Pleasure. and of course, Simon, you've known Christian for a very long time. Far too long. Well, I'm going to, let's go back, let's go all the way back to those first, those first days. How, how did you meet Christian and um, what, what are your impressions of, of the young, young Christian? I mean, I, I saw him racing in Formula Renault uh, 92. Wow, when... that was going back a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you only won a race in 92, I, I remember did, you. I did, yeah. Teammates against... to Harry Nuttall at Manor, yes. if I recall correctly. Um, but, uh, I mean, I think you'd probably concur. I mean, you had some success in Formula Renault, but as you got further up the ladder, he dried you, you, out. You, 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 you kind of you kind of drifted off the pace a little bit, didn't yes, you? Yes. Yeah. And um, but no, we we first met. We first sort of had a proper relationship, I guess, in uh, when Christian reached Formula Three Thousand, which I was covering. Ninety-seven, yeah. Uh, at the time, and uh, he did Formula Three Thousand for a couple of years, and then stepped down to become a team principal, which he's quite good at. And um, we've kind of yeah, we meant to. I mean, although I'm no longer in the F1 paddock on a weekend to weekend basis we've kept in touch over time and um, he's, he's always been he's always been very hospitable well you'd be very kind there we, we were talking in the taxi on the way over and i was trying mm. to get a, the, the assessment of your driving career and um it's a very balanced assessment your what's your assessment of your driving career and your your skill level if you'd have carried on and i'm sure you've been asked well firstly i thought simon was in zidane yeah, and, uh, and the footballer. When I first met him, he was, he was the absolute lookalike. My children think that as well. And of course, I speak French, which, which also kind of... Which, which, this is a secret life. Yeah, so the, 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 the accusation has been made before. Yeah. Um, but as far as my driving... Look, um, I think Simon summed up pretty well, really. I um, uh, was a, a hopeful carter. I enjoyed... I, I, you know, I loved racing. Um, you know, I was fortunate that... Uh, it's something I could do with my, you know, with my family and, and, and so on. My father helped me and, you know, very much in the early days. And then moving into Formula Renault, I won a scholarship from Renault to move from karts into car racing. And I, you know, won a race. I beat Pedro de la Rosa at that international race circuit known as Pembury. Um, and you did mention Pembury. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and then that led to signing a contract with Lotus in Formula 3 with options as a test driver in Formula One. Um, I finished second in, in class in that year. And it was around 94, things started to, to plateau somewhat. And um, I was racing against guys like, you know, Jan Magnussen and Dario Franchitti and, and some really, you know, 
strong drivers at, at, at that point. Montoya? Uh, Montoya yeah. came a little later on in, in, in Formula 3000, Tom Christensen and Nick Heidfeld and Stefan Sarazan, you know, some, you know some, some really talented guys around at, at, at that point. But you know, the higher I went, the harder it became. And you know, I didn't have the budgets as well. And, and that's really where I fell into um, team management almost by mistake because I got a certain amount of you know, money that I'd worked hard to, to generate with sponsorship and so on. And um, uh, basically in Formula 3000 in those days, you could run a one car team. And so I thought, well, if I, if I buy a car from Lola, at least at the end of the year, I've still got an asset rather than a set of overalls and some result sheets. Um, and so that was really, it was, a, it was a way to cost effectively go racing um, that, uh, that I created the Arden team um, for the 97 season. Did you enjoy the buzz of um, operating or driving a car as much as the, the buzz of being in competition? I wonder if the, you can separate the two. I really enjoyed the competition in, in the early years in, in, in kart racing and, uh, and so on. That was great because it was just absolute pure, you know, racing. Um, I enjoyed the Formula Renault years. I drove with John Booth or for his team in Formula Renault and you know, he was a great guy to drive for and have that first introduction to the world of of, of motorsport um i then drove you know in formula three for, for for different teams and and i think that what it taught me was that having driven in good teams and not so good teams was that you know the people were the key uh, the key asset were the key differentiator and what it gave me was a perspective from a driver's point of view when you're sitting in the cockpit it's a pretty lonely place and, um, you know, you're relying on the, the feedback that you're picking up from the mechanics, from the engineers, from, you know, from, from the management of whatever team. And so when I set up a team, I try to do it with that in mind, what it would have been like as a driver, what you're looking right. for. And, and so what I'm grateful for my driving career, even though it was rather modest, was that it gave me that experience. It gave me that exposure to that, uh, uh, you know, in a very minor way to some of those sensations that, you know, still serve me well today. So that's still a default setting then in a way. You, you, I'm just trying to sort of imagine myself in a situation where you've got to make a very critical decision. Do you take yourself back to how would the driver feel about this? How would the, yeah, I know there's a number of elements. Particularly over a Grand Prix weekend, you, yeah. you know, you, you might see prior to qualifying, you, you can sense that there's, there's a bit of nerves. You can see right. that drivers, they have routines, whether you call it superstition or routines, it's the process that they go through to get themselves into the, um, uh, you know, into the zone as it were. And I think, you know, just being there to offer a bit of comfort at times, a bit of, uh, uh, you know, support, and also to be able to sometimes interpret what the drivers saying and feeling from the car that perhaps you know an engineer hasn't picked up mm -hmm. just going back to the bit about you transitioning from racing driver to team manager yeah um i remember you mentioned this to me once the moment that you decided right i'm not i'm not going to be able to do this I'm going to stop at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. Was 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 the fault of a Colombian driver at Turn yeah. One at Estoril? I think the, <laughs> I think that story is worthy of a wider audience. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the problem was it was pre-season testing, 
And uh, Estoril, the first two turns there used to be viciously quick. And uh, I remember driving out the pit lane um, and uh, yeah, this, this blue car came seething past me. Um, and I could see the rear wheel, the rim trying to pop out of the tire. Um, totally committed, totally planted. There's a barrier feet away on the, uh, you know, on the exit of the, uh, on the outside of the circuit. And there was just total commitment um, and absolute car control. And I just knew going into that corner, having witnessed just that, that second of absolute skill, that there was no way, despite all the will in the world, that I would be able to replicate that. There was a safety mechanism built in between my foot and brain <laughs> that wouldn't allow that and not a level of talent either. And, um, and that was Juan Pablo Montoya, um, who had the most sublime uh, car control. And so really at that point, I knew, right, this is your last season. So, I mean, basically your success as a team principal is partly down to Juan Pablo Montoya. Yes, absolutely. I should have thanked him on the grid in uh, <laughs> Austin two weeks ago when I, when I saw him. But he's just, he's just a bit wider than he was yeah. then. But he's exactly the same character, you know, that he, uh, that he was then. So that, but that was pre-season testing. That was pre-season testing, Estoril, 1998. Yeah. So yeah, I guess you... it's probably too late to find another driver at that point. <laughs> yeah. <wasn't it>? so <laughs> exactly. And I've got employing a bunch of mechanics and whatever else. So it was down to me to keep going. But how did, how did you keep going, having, having had that um, kind of... I put it to the back of my mind and, 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 and got on with it and, and, and you know, was in the process of, of, of building the team. I mean, later in the year, I remember just before I jumped in the car at, at the final race in the Nürburgring, um, I was negotiating to buy a car off David Brown at McLaren to start a test program for, uh, uh, for, for this Lucor sponsorship we had for the following year. And then David actually, they'd had a problem in that race where they hadn't qualified or they were going to be Nick, at the Nick, back. Nick, Nick, Nick had to, um, Nick, was, Nick had to car was illegal. It was a, f a fuel irregularity. Yeah, or, and he was, um, he was put. He was put into thirty-third place in a thirty-two car grid. And, and they, they, <laughs> so, they, they, and they, he was going for the title, so they had to go and buy a slot on the grid. Exactly. They yeah. offered me an enormous discount <laughs> in order not to take the start, so that Nick potentially could take the start. Um, but I thought, you know what, this is my last race. I'm, I'm going to do it. And he started on the grid anyway. So uh, it's interesting how the, the politics have kind of crept in there. Do you, do you enjoy the political wranglings then? Do you enjoy them now? Does it, does it feel as much sport as the, <laughs> as yeah. the actual sport? <laughs> I mean, even in those days, I remember um, uh, the, the, the Formula 3000 teams, there was some, some, some interesting characters around, you know, representing the different, the different teams. And um, I remember we used to have these meetings, not really achieve much, but they decided that we needed a representative to go and represent us in uh, the, these teams in front of Bernie Eccleston, to go and ask him for more money, that we needed a pit stop, and um, you know we needed a bit more support of Formula 3000, and I was nominated as that person. <laughs> I think it was Helmut actually that put me well, forward, because yeah. Helmut at the time had a team, the Red Bull Junior team in, in, in Formula 3000, and uh, and so from even at that stage, I remember. Um, being the one to interface, and that was really where I met Bernie, mm -hmm. was by bringing him up and saying, come on, we need some help, this is your championship. Um, uh, you know, will you allow us to do X, Y, and Z? Which he was very good and said, yep, yeah, you know, go for it. I was gonna say, it was sort of doubly useful in a way, because A, 
it helps you forge a relationship with Bernie. Mm -hmm. And two, it acclimatised you to taking part in meetings that achieve nothing, which came in useful in Formula One later on. <laughs> Absolutely, there just wasn't as much mineral water at those meetings. But, but, um, but no, it was, a, it was a great education. You know, and then I found myself in front of the World Council representing a driver that had, was five times over the legal drug limit um, for substances that he shouldn't have ingested or, or inhaled. Um, uh, you know, so I had all of that to deal with, the whole World Council and, you know, success, successfully managed to, to represent Thomas that he kept a career. He lost the, the former 3000 championship mm. title that he'd won that year mm. in 2002. But, um, you know, he kept a career because he, he was a very gifted driver and it would have been a great shame. Uh, you know, I'd arranged uh, a test drive of BAR for him right. um, that was all set up. He got a test with Newman Haas in the States. And as soon as, uh, obviously, his misdemeanor, everybody backed away from him in a million miles an hour. Um, and Sebastian Bourdais went on to take the Newman Haas seat and obviously went on to do great things with it. At, at that time, did you, did you have ambitions to take Arden into Formula One? Well, certainly, certainly in the early time, yeah. I mean, uh, winning the championship in 2002 and then losing it with Tom, Thomas. Yeah. Then won it again in 2003 with, with uh, Bjorn Wirdheimer, a Swedish driver. And then won it again very dominantly with uh, Vitantoni Liuzzi uh, in 2004. And it was at that point, and having built a relationship with, with Bernie and so on, that um, he was encouraging me, come on, you've got to get involved. I want to get rid of Eddie Jordan. Um, he's driving me mad. Um, help me find a solution, or I'll help you find a solution. And um, so initially I started to have discussions about Jordan Grand Prix. I got an investor from Hutchinson Wampoa and um, we started to do the due diligence at the end of, uh, in the autumn of 2004 on, um, on Jordan Grand Prix. But it, it just became a more and more in typical Eddie Way complicated deal. Um, and then actually, uh, Helmut Marko um, approached me and said, well, actually, Red Bull, we're considering looking at a team as well. Where have you got to with Jordan? And that was really where the discussion you, you know, kicked off from. I'd known Helmut from 97 when I first yeah. traveled to Graz to buy a race trailer off him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, I always had a good relationship with him. And then I was running his junior driver, Liuzzi. Yeah. Um, who he'd done a typical helmet deal. He paid me half price for the deal. Um, and I said, well, okay, I'll take him, but you've got to pay me, I forget what the number, I think it was about 15 or 20,000 euros per race win. Well, Antonio uh, went on to win, I think, nine out of the 10 races that year. So <laughs> it worked out. You can't out. tell him to stop winning. <laughs> it, it, worked out, it worked out okay. Um, but uh, so initially, initially there was a, a, a look-see with Arden and the Jordan team. But as I say, that deal became too complicated. But then suddenly, you know, Red Bull had a look at it as well. Um, I went out to see Dietrich uh, in, the, uh, in the autumn of 2004. Um, and uh, he had a concept of an American team at, the, at that time. Um, and he explored, he had a little look at Jordan, but then having already been involved at Jaguar as a sponsor mm. and with Jaguar suddenly announcing they were going to withdraw, Red Bull became the obvious, um, uh, you know, buyer of the, of the Jaguar team. Yeah. In between times, as well as, I mean, 
after buying a trailer from Helmut. Helmut yeah. I mean, the two of you actually worked, collaborated very closely at the end of 99, didn't you? Because you both had Formula 3000 yep. teams that had sponsors and drivers, etc. Yep. But neither of you had qualified amongst the top 15 teams to take Correct. part in the following year's championship. So you worked together that winter on deals to buy yep. teams from elsewhere, didn't you? So, yep. I mean, there was a very strong bond already. Yeah, I mean, well, it started in, in at the end of 96, actually, sorry, it was the first time I went to, uh, uh, to see Helmut. I had a, a, a race engineer and setting up the Arden team, we, we needed a trailer and, and, and the race engineer chap called David Luff said, well, I know there's a chap in Austria that's got a trailer for sale. His name's Helmut Mark. I never heard of the guy. Um, but I got on a plane to, to, to Graz, went and had a look at this trailer, it was neat and tidy, and then met Helmut in his hotel, um, who um, basically interviewed me. I thought, I've kind of had a trailer. <laughs> and he's interviewed me about what are you doing and why, you know, why and how, and you know, what are your thoughts on Formula 3000? Anyway, we agreed a price on this, on this trailer, 35,000 pounds, I can remember it today. And it was all the money that, uh, the, that I had, that I could raise on finance uh, and so on. And, but the deal was I had to transfer the money as soon as I got back to England and uh, he would deliver the trailer to Calais uh, within the next two weeks. And so I remember I, going back to the UK and I remember saying to my father, well, I've bought a trailer. And he said, well, where is it? I said, well, it's in Austria with this chap that I met. He said, well, how much did it go? I said, how much to disclose how much it costs and um he said well when are you going to pay and i said well i paid already and he said you idiot you paid. <laughs> you've paid somebody you've met for half an hour you've got no paperwork deliver it to calais and it's going to be delivered to calais yeah <laughs> and so literally i rang helmet pretty much every day every day from there onwards sweating that this whether or not this trailer was going to arrive and of course good to his word it it, it absolutely did, and uh, that was the start of my relationship with Helmut. But as you say, at 99, we found that we were outside of the, the cut-off uh, number to, to qualify for Formula 3000 the following year. So Helmut ended up buying the entry off Orica, I think, and uh, I ended up acquiring the entry off uh, Draco. Draco. Um, and uh, that enabled both of us he had at the time Red Bull backing. I had uh, local uh, funding um, to continue into the following seasons. Goodness gracious. I'm going to jump back now to uh, 2005. And, and you mentioned earlier on the, the importance of getting the right people around you. Yeah. Now, obviously, one of the very first things um, you worked on when you joined Red Bull was, was trying to get hold of Adrian Newey. Mm -hmm. So um, t tell us about that, that process of securing um, arguably the greatest Formula One designer of his era, if not of all time. Well, I'd use the same, exactly the same philosophy that I'd done in Formula 3000. Uh, Simon would recall the engineer, uh, Mick Cook, yeah. who'd won the Formula 3000 championship with uh, Zonta and Montoya and come very close with Kenny Brack and was a very, very highly regarded engineer, very quiet guy, quite mm -hmm. introvert. Um, and I decided early on in 3000, that was the engineer that I needed and I'd build a team around him and I managed to do that managed to get him and he was a key part of the success that we we achieved in that period and so I just adopted the same philosophy with Adrian that Adrian was the guy you know I loved his cars mm -hmm. you know growing up in the sport I'd been a big Nigel Mansell fan um, I'd been sponsored by Autoglass when he mm -hmm. was a designer at 
Leyden House. I'd sat in one of his cars, um, you know, at one of the, at the uh, Estoril Grand Prix in 1989. Um, and, you know, he'd come from Stratford, um, <laughs> which was very close to where I grew up. And so there were, if you like, um, common points of, of interest. And so I made it um, a point of mine to introduce myself to him. And I found him actually standing outside the energy station at the first European race in 2005. It the first time the energy station had been, yeah. been seen in public. Yeah. And we're parked next to McLaren that was a very sterile, pristine setup. And suddenly there's this sort of music festival going on next door. And Adrian, was, and, yeah, yeah. Adrian was standing outside looking at it, sort of <laughs> quite impressed. <laughs> and so I just went out and said, come in, come in and have a, come and have a look around. And really it was from there that, uh, you know, we just kept in, yeah, we kept in touch. And then David Coulthard, of course, was mm. driving for us. And I, I said to David, look, I sense Adrian's not that happy at McLaren. And... Uh, uh, David was right. Who you need to talk to is his wife. <laughs> um, so so um, he arranged uh, a dinner for the two of us and Adrian and his former wife um, at the Bluebird uh, uh, Cafe in, 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 in London. And that was, you know, we started talking there and then started talking about, you know, his time in Leamington Spa and Stratford and and uh yeah and it was we just hit it off immediately um and and very quickly progressed from there to well do you want to come and be part of this um and uh, uh you know come and meet come and meet dietrich and it's i mean it's fascinating really 12 years later still very much part of the team um it, you've obviously been able to manage and keep his motivation at a high level I know I'm asking for a few secrets here but there's got to be some tricks to be able to keep his motivation is it fulfilling his creative desire to, to, yeah. to produce the best car is it competitive desire is a number of readers have asked about the road car yeah. and the yacht side of things as well so well Adrian is is like an artist he's he's mm. a free spirit mm -hmm. and I think if you can try if you contain any artist Mm -hmm. then A, you don't get the best out of them, but you diffuse their creativity. Yep. And I think that's what had happened to him, certainly in the latter years in McLaren, that, you know, his, he'd lost his mojo mm. um, there and his creativity was being stifled. And so really what I've tried to do with Adrian, you know, working with him is just create an environment that gives him freedom and that he doesn't feel you yeah. know, stifled. And, and that way he's been able to express himself you know, the, the best way possible. And yeah. you know, obviously in latter years that's involved doing you know, road cars or his own driving or yeah. you know, crashing on ski slopes. <laughs> How do you feel when your technical director disappears for the weekend to race a Lotus 49 or something? And comes back with a headache. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, look, Adrian, the, the great thing about Adrian, he's so passionate about motor racing. He's just been to Zuhai with his son in a oh, wow. sports car race. Um, and, uh, yeah, he's, he's a passionate racer and um, uh, he enjoys driving the cars. He enjoys, you know, all aspects of it. He's got a great uh, knowledge of the history of the sport. And, uh, you know, he's a, underneath it all, he's a fan.
Speaking of fans, that's a great segue. Thank you for that one. I'm going to um, jump to our reader questions. Um, there are a number of Red Bull fans um, among the motorsport audience. I think they, um, they warm to the independent spirit and mm -hmm. the, the feisty nature of, uh, of the company. Um, and also, as I mentioned earlier on, they're, they're quite brave with their questions okay. too. Right, so, fire away then. <laughs> um, so we've got, we've got around half an hour to go and I think because we have so many questions then we'll, we'll dive, dive straight in. And feel free, Simon, to uh, to add your expertise or tell me don't ask that one. Um, I'm just going to pick a random one. Here we go. Ah, here we go. There's a Montoya okay. question from Diego Ruiz. Um, I understand Montoya was offered a Red Bull contract after his time in McLaren. If so, was he a long-term prospect? Do you think he could have been a world champion with Red Bull? This could be one of those no. Next no, 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 we, we had... Um, <laughs> We had some discussion with uh, Juan Pablo. I'm just trying to think of the year that it was. Um, he, it was the year that he'd had the the tennis accident on his motorbike. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, <sure. laughs> Fell off his <laughs> tennis racket. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think he was, was yeah, playing tennis on the motorbike. Yeah, yeah, I think it was. Yeah. It was around yeah. that yeah. time, and I remember we, uh, Adrian and I, because Adrian, you know, was a was a fan of his. So we arra arranged to see his manager and Juan Pablo in Monaco, which was on a on a boat that he'd rented for the weekend. And we went to this boat and there were kids running around everywhere. There was absolute mayhem as we were trying to sit around this table and have a, a very serious conversation with Julian, his very officious legal representative, <laughs> you know. And Julian's a great guy, but, you know, you can't imagine him with kids jumping all over the place, pizza in his ear, um, all that kind of stuff. And um, we, ha we discussed it, but it never, from that point, it never gained any, any real traction. So it was an interesting discussion, but quickly um, faded you know, from there. Can I just, uh, uh, on a similar topic, how close have you ever been to signing Fernando Alonso? We got very close. Uh, Helmut and I, went to see his management um, at the end of 2008 for the 2009 and 10 season. And we offered him a two-year contract. Um, uh, sorry, it was for 2008 and nine. Um, and uh, he would only sign up for one year. And, and we said, look, you know, Red Bull's position was, and it was Mr. Malachitz's, it was a two-year deal or or nothing and he wouldn't commit to that um, and that uh, uh, you know we thought he had had a Ferrari contract very clearly for the um, for 2009 um, what was slightly weird about that was that Flavio was involved as well but he was trying to get him for the Renault team um, that he was managing at, at, at the time and in the end he ended up driving for Renault for, for, for two, two years. years yeah. But he, halfway through 2009, I had an approach to say, could he join the team mid-season because they felt he could win the championship in that car. And then we had another conversation in the back of an Alfa Romeo at Spa Airport um, <laughs> several, several years later. I think it was around 2013. Late 2013 for the 2014 season, maybe. It was, was I think it was actually 11 or 12, end of 11 or 12. So, so, um, but it, again, it never really, the most serious discussion was the first, was the, the, first. Was the yeah. first one. And then, and then it, it missed its chance. 
Do you think there's there's a there's a theme in the the drivers that that you've tried to sign or you have signed? For me, it's, it goes back to the fact that they're racers, absolute pure racers. Is that is that a fair assessment? You go for their absolutely. absolutely. I think we go for for absolute outright skill, passion, determination. You know, drivers with with, with big hearts and and big talent and. Uh, uh, you know, Helmut is responsible for the junior program, and he's been mm -hmm. great at picking, you know, young young talent. Seeing he's only got one eye, but he's got a good one in terms of picking up, um, you know, young talent. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Verstappen, Vettel, Ricardo, signs are all, you know, current products of that. And others slip through the net, and that's ultimately because there's there's two seats available yeah. in Red Bull and there's two at Toro Rosso. So there's a number of questions here. Uh, Red Bull helmet too tough on those that don't make it. Well, I think look, Formula One is a really tough environment. And, uh, you know, without Red Bull, these guys would never have had the chance. So on one hand, you can argue it's tough. But on the other hand, if, if they're not cut out to deal with that pressure, they'll never cope. Um, with the pressure that surrounds them in a in, in a top flight uh, Formula One team, so it's a uh, it's tough love in 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 many respects. It brings me is the question um, about Lutzi actually, who for all intents and purposes seemed to be in his karting career another phenomenal. level, absolutely another level. Um, what happened there? Where where did that? He didn't lose the talent, but something. Yeah. I'd be interested in Simon's, uh, you know, evaluation of this. I mean, I, I ran him that year in Formula mm. 2000, 2004. He was totally dominant, but you had to, you know, he was very Italian. Had to love him and mm -hmm. make him feel special. And he was a, he was a lazy little bugger underneath it. Um, and when he got the opportunity in Formula One, I never felt that he fully committed himself. Right. Um, and he was a wonderfully gifted driver. Um, but uh, I remember in the Formula 3000, he had a very specific braking technique to, and we had to run very small master cylinders to give him the, the feel. Okay. I think when he came into the carbon brakes of Formula 1, he never totally mastered that. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I always had the impression that he had massive, massive, massive natural ability. But when you got up here and you had to combine that with yeah. a more serious, a more dedicated work ethic, and the way he said, like a fettle, who's got that massive natural ability, but also yeah. spends all his spare time reading telemetry yeah. traces. Um, and he just didn't have that. And I remember you telling me, you might be able to confirm, I'm pretty sure you did, that he, he, didn't, he either didn't turn up for a scheduled F1 test at Silverstone or he turned up late because he was busy having a new sofa delivered to his new flat in Hemel Hempstead or mm -hmm. something. And, <laughs> yeah. And, Priorities. Um, and, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I think, I'm, I'm sure you did, you did tell me that, didn't you? That, quite possibly. Yeah. It sounds very and, much uh, like so that. Sounds, but I remember thinking, well, that's just... You know, you you forget everything to get your backside yeah. in the Formula One car. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. I did. I did. You know, hugely talented guy, okay. but just that last little bit mm -hmm. that you need at the top level. Yeah. Are you looking for that special Christmas gift? The GT one-hour driving experience is one of Mercedes' most extreme driving experiences ever. You will spend the first 30 minutes of your experience behind the wheel of a high-performance Mercedes AMG. Oh, I can feel his eyes boring into. <laughs> 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 
Before you take control of the incredible Mercedes AMG GT for a further 30 adrenaline fueled minutes of high performance driving. To book, please call 03704004000 and quote GT one hour driving experience Christmas offer. Terms apply and offers must be booked and delivered by Sunday 1st of April 2018. Okay, Matt um, from South Korea, actually Simon, you asked this question about Alonso, but he has asked another question, so I'll get this in for, for you, Matt. Um, Congratulations, congratulations on helping make Red Bull Racing what it is today. I'd like to ask you about Sebastian Loeb, who tested for Toro Rosso but was not granted a super license. Did you see any indications of how he performed? Well, he tested for us in Barcelona as well. Mm. Um, again, I'm trying to think which year is around 2007 or 2008. The plan was yeah. to put him in the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix in yes. 2009. Yeah. If memory but serves. Then, and then that came very close to happening. I mean, 2008, considering the difference that there was in discipline from jumping out of a rally car into a Formula yeah. 1 car. And again, he'd got that application of a champion right. um you know the 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 depth that he went into in his preparation just for that one test yeah. that he did for rebel racing was truly impressive yeah and he acquitted himself very very well which was what created the interest for yeah. for the following year but uh, a very very accomplished driver yeah i mean I, I was at that test and um the it was quite interesting because standing trackside Loeb looked like most of the others and Adrian Souter and one of the others looked like rally drivers yeah. <laughs> and, and, and Loeb was much neater and tidier yeah. than, than, than some of the other guys I think he's about a second and a half off yeah. or some, something like yeah. that which but given the circumstances it was, it, was, very, it was very very respectable very yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, three readers have asked similar questions. I need to, to name check them. Uh, Elias Overbosch, um, Newman Mithani, um, and there's another one which I'll find in a second. I'll ask it from Elias's perspective. Red Bull has been having a trend of starting off a season on the back foot, but rapidly developing throughout to eventually close up with the leaders towards the end of the season. Um, it's very, very timely, I think, actually, with Max's uh, recent win. Um, I'd like to ask, what measures have Red Bull taken to prepare the car um, to match Mercedes and Ferrari right from the get-go, considering how close the car is this year already? I, I, I think, think there's I can two understand. questions in there. I, yeah. Yeah. I think you know, a couple of seasons, 11 and 13, we've been competitive from the beginning of the year. But generally, the trend over the last certainly six, seven years has been the second half of the year has yep. been more competitive for us. The beginning of this year, we had correlation issues between our simulation tools, which are primarily the wind tunnel and, and CFD, um, that the two weren't giving yeah. the, the, the kind of uh, results that we'd become accustomed to, to relying in. And um, it took a little while to understand that um, and unpick that. But once that was done, there was a clear direction um, that was, was locked onto and then really from Barcelona race onwards, there was, you know, steps, but we got not only got to move forward, we got to close the ground to the, uh, yeah. the opponents as well. So the second part of the question going into next year, what we're trying to do is to bring that process, you know, forward slightly, albeit a week, yeah. but that week will hopefully give us the uh, ability to arrive at the first test, um, you know, better prepared. Right, Kevin Joyce. Thank you, you asked the, the same question there and thank you for answering the three questions in one there. Um, I'm gonna to have to go for a lucky dip because we've got, we've got so many here. There's a few questions on Max. Um, 
Let's ask Boomerang. It's definitely not his real name. In, Is he in, from Australia? I'm not sure. I think so. In one occasion, you said that Max has to build the team around him. Unless I misheard it, please accept my apology. Are you suggesting that Daniel is leaving the team in 2018? No, not at all. What, what, what actually I'm referring to is that, you know, within his engineering group, with the people that he's, that he's working with, in the same way that, you know, that Daniel is on his side of the garage, is to have that confidence in the people that are, that are, that are around you. And, you know, obviously to make his uh, feedback you know, very clear in terms of what he wants from the car. Now, fortunately, the way the two drivers drive the car is very similar. Similar, right. their setups are very similar. So, it's not like as a team we have a a left or right, you know, to choose. What works for one, ninety nine percent of the time works works for the other in terms of how we've progressed the car. And I feel that Max and Daniel represent, you know, our best ever, um, you know, pairing mm. in Formula One and. I think are currently probably the best driver pairing on the on the grid, and so it's our and certainly my priority to try and make sure we retain that, you know, at least until 2020. As just as um, as the subject of Max has just come up, and it's still reasonably topical, Austin only having been yeah. 10 or 11 days ago as we speak. Um, track limits. Now, I'm partial to a spot of good motor racing, mm. which is whilst I'm a Formula Ford. Um, that move that Max pulled last lap, mm. yeah, he was he was on the kerbs, mm. but so were most other drivers on most other yep. laps. Uh, I can understand why you were frustrated. It cost you a podium. Yep. It, it took the edge, if you like, yep. of a, what had a been a fantastic drive. Yep. Um, what can we do? I mean, where do you stand on that particular incident, and what can we do to come up with come up with a system <clears throat> that actually? nails once and for all what is acceptable and what isn't. Well, I think the frustration with that particular incident, if you look at it in isolation, yes, he was off track. But all weekend, cars have been running off track. All the time. And indeed, Bottas had been fighting with Daniel. He'd run off track at turn one, come down ahead of him and retained his position into turn two and was able to defend it. So my frustration with the, uh, the way that was handled was that it was inconsistent. Now, I had that debate after the race and had some constructive discussion with uh, both the stewards and the technical um, delegate. And what, what it came down to were two things. One, I think the rule is badly written in terms of that you're, you're putting too much pressure on the stewards to say this is an advantage and this, on this occasion it isn't an advantage. It's not like in another sport where over the white line is out or, you know, there's not a binary position on it so that rapidly moved to well look we've encouraged these drivers to race we've told them you know since the beginning of the year we want close quarter racing that's what the fans love that's what Formula One's about use what you like on you know the circuit and then we're starting to penalize them if if you don't want the drivers to use those bits of the circuit whether it's inside or outside put a curb there or a gravel trap or a you know, a runoff area. Um, now it comes down to, well, the MotoGP guys don't like it. Well, you know, my view selfishly for Formula One is if you're hosting a Formula One event, you know, you don't put, you don't put rugby posts up at, a, at Wembley and say, well, can you just use those lads, be, you know, for a football game because the rugby guys don't like it. It's, you know, it's got to be bespoke 
for a Formula One event. And I think that's the responsibility of the circuit to ensure that, you know, if you don't want a driver to run off track, put something there. They don't run off track in Singapore or Azerbaijan or, you know, or, or, or Monaco, as you say, or Montreal. Montreal, or even an old school track like Suzuka. No, absolutely. Yeah, and the racing's great. Yeah. A related question from uh, Poe Estevé Amros um, about allowing the drivers to race, and this is uh, in relation to the tyres. What do you think would make the perfect tyres for F1 in terms of how they wear the variety of compounds and having a cliff point? I think there needs to be degradation in a tyre, mm -hmm. and that way you can strategically take different routes, because the best races are when you've got people on opposing strategies that allow them to be fighting with each other or racing yeah. in close proximity. I think the tyre choice for this year has been very conservative because I think Pirelli were um, uh, spooked a little by data yeah. they were given by other teams to say how much downforce these cars were, were gonna have. And so the, their tyre choice was quite conservative, which therefore we end up with you know, one-stop races. And I think we need to be at two to three-stop races where strategy can play a key element you know, in, uh, in racing. So the tyre needs to have sort of linear degradation in it. Yeah. That, you know, your, your soft variant is quicker, but it degrades quicker. Your medium, you know, less so, and your harder, you could do the much longer stint on, but mm. you're going to be slower. Yeah. Um, and you pick your quickest way to, to, to conduct a race. The, the linearity, though, is, yeah. is key, isn't it? Because Absolutely. you don't want what we had a few years ago. You'd have linear, 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 boom. No, yeah. That, that was rubbish. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's talk about the race weekend format. Yep. A lot's been discussed recently. Um, how would you like to see the race weekend? Do you think there should be a, a sprint race? Do you think that it should be a two-day weekend now or a two-day race meeting? Well, I think it's a long way to go to Australia for two days. And it's yeah, for the promoters as well. Yeah. I mean, for me, maybe we could do more with a Friday. Um, Maybe we do a single session on a Friday, but we open it up more, you know, allow people in the paddock. Um, maybe the drivers could do more over Grand Prix weekend. In the old days, they used to drive pro cars, you know, yeah. or even a touring car over the weekend. And maybe you, you could do some kind of one make, you know, race at certain events that all the drivers drove the same the same marquee of car. Perhaps the Aston Martin that Adrian knew he's been involved in recently. <laughs> that would be interesting. Um, I'm a little bit of a traditionalist and I don't like the gimmicky idea of short sprint races and then another race. A Grand Prix is a Grand Prix. And, um, you know, it should retain that um, DNA of, of, of where it's come from. Qualifying should be on a, on a Saturday. Race day should be on a Sunday. I'm open to when the race is. Yeah but a Grand Prix should be a Grand Prix. W what the entertainment is in that Grand Prix period is something that needs to be you know, more exciting and more enthralling for the fan, but it needs to be at least an hour and a half, you know, hour and 40 minute race yeah. of you know, approximately 200 miles. What about a warm up, Sunday morning warm up? I'm not sure what it would add. You know, okay, but for the fans they see a little bit of you know, their cars running. I mean, certainly in modern days, nobody would do the warm up or you do an in and an out lap because your engine mileage is so yeah. restricted. We don't have the tires for it, but um, I'm not quite sure what a warm up would actually, would actually No, I have. think in this, in this day and age, because of all the telemetry, 
I mean, and because of, even wet and dry, you run reasonably similar setups nowadays, don't you? I mean, there aren't any sort of chasms no. or, or surprises. I think in the old days before telemetry, yeah. you needed to go out and just check how the car and was And they handled, take out, in the old days, they take out the qualifying engine mm. and radiators yeah. and everything. They put in the race engine so and, it'd be a different setup, and yeah. it'd be another yeah. gearbox. And you'd need that warm-up just to make sure mm. that everything was, yeah. was working but, properly. But now you've got a fairly clear idea by Sunday Absolutely. morning. The engineering what, standards what, are yeah. so high, it's not, it's not needed. It would be nice to see all the F1 drivers out in F2 cars. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. that would be no, but it would. I mean, I think, you've I got. Would, yeah. I mean, fairly raw, six hundred brake horsepower cars yeah. with very few gizmos yeah. on them. They're, they're difficult to control. I'd love to see the drivers in a one-mate car, whether it's Formula mm. Two or even a touring car, a different discipline almost. Yeah. Well, I mean, the um, pro car style thing would be fantastic. You know, the pro car. I, thing, I do think F two would be funny. The the pro car thing was 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 great. Genius. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. But the problem is with commercial considerations, very hard to pick up manufacturer's car that they could drive without upsetting you know uh, another representative it'd have to be created for the purpose yeah. wouldn't it it could be a space frame Radicals type car yeah it'd have yeah. to be a, a non-manufacturer yeah, yeah. non specific yeah. we lost the full rubber bumpers like yeah. kids yeah. go-cars yeah. i think it would get messy uh, wouldn't it we're talking about the format of the race weekends um as we sit here it's 24 hours since the fia announced a vague framework yep. for the future engine regulations. And you promised an exclusive. And you did promise an exclusive. <laughs> okay. So what, Christian Horner, is your take on the future Formula One engine regulations? Well, look, I think I came back from a meeting in Paris yesterday and I must admit I was very encouraged by what I saw. For once, FOM and FIA were absolutely aligned in what their vision of an engine is for the future. Um, and I think the really encouraging for me wasn't so much the specification, because I'd have loved it to have been a V10 or V12 or some high screaming, normally aspirated engine. I, uh, maybe like Simon, I'm a bit of a dinosaur like that, but I accept that, okay, you know, we live in a modern world, so a V6 uh, turbo engine is, is what has been, been elected. Now, what, where they've put a key amount of focus is on several factors. One is on the sound that the sound has got to come back into to Formula One. Um, the, it's part of its, its heritage, its, you know, its makeup. Um, then the other elements that they've really, that from an independent team such as, such as Red Bull that's totally encouraging is they want to ensure that as a customer you get absolute parity, not just on product but on electronics as well. Mm. So electrical settings uh, will have to be almost homologated so that the FIA can turn around to the public and say, like for like, that engine is exactly the same in that car as it is in, its, in the works yeah. car. Yeah. Then the actual regulations that they're looking at, um, I think are, are you know, positive in that it's boxing things in to the point that uh, you know, there'll be large elements of uh, standardization on certain components like turbos and and uh, you know, perhaps prescriptive design as, as well of, of bottom end. So there's going to be less variance between engine manufacturers. What we have at the moment is too big a spread, and it puts too much pressure on the chassis side of things. And I think the FIA have basically looked at the engine and thought, one, it costs too much, two, it's not delivering from a, an acoustic point of view, um, and three, that it's too much of a performance differentiator. Yeah between the best and the worst. And I think they've looked at really narrowing that gap so that as an entrant, your biggest or your bigger influence will be on chassis. Now, obviously there's a few engine 
or, or works teams, shall we say, that perhaps weren't as happy with that that outlay because they think that's dumbing down one of the key elements of Formula One. But I, I think you know the drivers are of the biggest importance. Yeah. The teams secondary or the chassis secondary to that, and the engine engine you know tertiary to that. Yeah. Okay. Re related question then. Um, do you, what would be the maximum grid? What would you like to? How many cars would you like to see in Formula One? And do you think the new framework for the rules will encourage um, or enable more teams? I would like to see probably twenty-four cars on the grid. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see an independent team be able to run a year-old car to buy a car, because for me Agree. it's total madness Agree. that you need to have three, you know, three hundred people minimum. It's almost to, unethical to, to run a Grand Prix Just team. Why couldn't yeah. Prima? Yeah. By, you know, last year's uh, Ferrari and go go racing with it. Yeah. Um, the development moves so quickly that people are paranoid that they'd be winning Grand Prix. They wouldn't because it moves so, you know, so fast. But they could account themselves. Yeah. Uh, you know, well, and that would be a maybe for a period of time they have a three or five year period gestation period where they build an an infrastructure up. But I think. There's not enough grids on uh, cars on the grid at the moment, again to allow youngsters to be coming, coming through. I think ten is too too few. Twelve feels about the right number. I mean, <clears throat> you've obviously got a, you know, sort of a, a close eye on young drivers with the with the Red Bull yep. Junior program, and it must be very frustrating sometimes the lack of running you can give these guys. Well, it's impossible. I mean, we just can't give them mileage. So. And it's such a risk when we do give them mileage because the race drivers need that because they get so little practice time anyway. So that's where we've obviously, as an organization, invested significantly in simulation tools. And so actually the simulator now, it's a lot cheaper if they crash it. Um, yes. And they've got to a level where we're really able to see a driver's ability you know, within those simulators. So there's a quick fire question round now, Christian, okay. for you. Um, this is from our reader. His name is uh, Reinier, I think. Uh, I hope I've got that right. Uh, not a question, really. I now own and drive one of the Allen Docking F3 cars from 1995. I believe you drove the British F3 with ADR in 1995. I did. I started the season with them in 1995. And I'd love to hear how that was. I think what he's saying is, did you heavily crash the car? And is it? <laughs> uh, no, it was, a, it was a yellow car I drove. It had a Mugen engine in it. Alan ran four cars that year. Um, the others were um, with Mitsubishi Power in for Gonzalo Rodriguez, of the late Gonzalo, who was a wonderful driver, and uh, Warren Hughes. And I think an American driver, Brian Cunningham, yeah. was in the other car. But um, yes, that car. Um, I think Alex Wurtz took me off in it at the, at the British Grand Prix at, at Abbey Chicane, if I'm right, but um, it's a vintage. Okay, vintage. Here we go. This is a question from Jamie Smith. Uh, have you ever strapped yourself into a Red Bull and gone for a spin? Uh, no, I haven't actually. Um, the only Formula One car I've driven, uh, I've driven some old timers like a Surtees mm. and the SDP March and those kind of things that for a bit of fun at the Goodwood Festival. Um, but in, in anger, the only car I ever drove was the uh, Lotus um, in 1993 um, as a shakedown for, for Mika Hakkinen and Johnny Herbert. Mm, okay. 
So what you're effectively saying is that at the end of this year, you might get a go in the car and we'll get the exclusive on that story. I doubt, I doubt I'll be getting into they won't let you. cars. Well, you won't let you. I How does that myself. work? <laughs> I wouldn't let myself. Seriously, if I was in your job, I'd be, it'd be written into my own contract. <laughs> I must, must do track days in my own car. Um, okay, quick fire stuff as well. Now we have um, our new, oh, it's the second question from, from Newman Mithani. Mr. Horner, what do you admire in the operations of other teams, fellow team principals? You need not mention the teams and principals by name. Well, I think, you know, when I first came into Formula One, uh, I remember the first meetings I attended, you know, back in 2005, there was Jean Todd in the room, there was Ron Dennis, Frank Williams, there was Eddie Jordan jumping on the table. Um, there were, you know, Peter Sauber, um, you know, there were some, you know, Flavio Briatore, there were some some big names, and they were so different in their character and personality, and you could see it within their organization. Now, if I look around the room, it all looks very vanilla. You know, it all looks management groups and teams and so on. Whereas certainly in those days, the character, you know, Ron Dennis was passionate. Even mm -hmm. if it wasn't right, something that was right for McLaren, you know, he was very passionate about Formula One. Uh, you know, Flavio thought all engineers were criminals. <laughs> uh, and spent far too much money. It was all about the show. Um, you know, Frank was um, had got a charm and, and wit about him that was, uh, you know, extremely endearing. And and you know, Jean Todd in those days was absolutely uncompromising in his um, uh, in his role as Ferrari leader. That anything that went anywhere near affecting Ferrari, he would not in any way compromise. Mm -hmm. So it's a very different role, but you know, guys like Ron Dennis, Frank Williams, even Flavio in his own way, they were all people that, you know, you could learn something from. You don't necessarily think that's the, the, the way it is today. The characteristic of the, the team isn't sort of, doesn't necessarily reflect the, the guy at the top. I don't, I don't believe much, so maybe. in many respects now, and in, especially when I look at at rival teams, um, you know, I try and operate um, Red Bull almost as a big Formula 3000 team. Mm. Um, mm. You know, instead of 20 people in it, it's got close to 800 in it. But, you mm. know, we're a race team and that's what we're about. Um, and our focus is on, you know, winning races and, and trying to be as competitive. As, uh, as as possible. Um, I do, I, if I can just interject to that, I do, I do like the fact that Red Bull, you, you, to, to win Grand Prix, you don't need a, a large building with a yeah. big lake full of swans outside. Yeah. And glass everywhere. And, yeah. and glass everywhere. I mean, you guys, Red I mean, that's still the same building that was Paul Stewart yeah. Racing. I know it's expanded a bit. And there's a few people in there that were still Paul, Paul yeah, Stewart Racing. Yeah, but, it's, racing but well. it's, basically, it's been run from an industrial estate yeah. in Milton Keynes, and the only, yeah. it's only, its only purpose is to design successful racing cars, yeah. and it's, there's there's no artifice or pre when you come to the factory, yes. it's you know you don't see anything there that's kind of there's no, there's no there's no pretense or unnecessary yeah. flamboyance. It's just a, a very workmanlike and efficient racing car factory, yes. which I really like. Apart from we call it a campus these days. Oh, we call it campus. It, yes, it is bigger than it was. It's um, but it is still it is still it is a, it is, it, it is a, you know seven buildings on a on an industrial estate, and it, to me it just again emphasises. It's what's in the buildings, not the buildings themselves mm. that shape success. So people are your biggest asset and the quality of people and getting a group of people to work as a team and a unit. That is 
absolutely your biggest asset in Formula One. Christian, I think that's a fantastic way to end it. Thank you very much for, for the hour that you've, you've given us. Um, I know you have another event to go to this evening. Um, hopefully in a year or so, we can, we can come back and we can have another chat and hopefully we'll have a good near, a year next year in Formula One. Simon, thank you very much. Um, sounds like you guys in particular could talk for hours and hours yeah. and hours. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And I'm sure when those are switched off, there'll be started. a couple it's of... Dark now. It was, yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, thank you very much again. And um, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. And we will see you next time. What do you think of when someone says the word used? Old-fashioned? Out of tune? A bit scratched? Something past its best. Chances are you're not thinking of a Mercedes-Benz. Think Mercedes-Benz approved used. Suddenly, there's a lot more meaning to that little word. Visit your local retailer to find your used car today, and you'll see what I mean. I like the way you work Mercedes-Benz approved used. Used, but not what you're used to.